The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, everybody. This is Joni Siegel, and this is The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, and this is episode number 102. We are closing out our second year with uh, next week's episode, and we will be getting year three which would be, I think, episode 104, maybe 105. I'm not sure. For those of you who uh, love Jason and love hearing Jason's voice, and I happen to be one of them, I don't want you to despair. He will be back with us, hopefully, on the next episode. He is currently wearing several different hats at Narcanon Suncoast. And unfortunately, because the addiction problem is still a huge problem in this country, and actually across the world, he is very busy, and Narcanon Suncoast is very busy. And that's not going to slow up anytime soon, but I am hoping that he can get some help over at the at Narcanon Suncoast so that he can come and be on the podcast with me again. So this week's episode, he's not with me. But you may recall back in August of 2018, and it was before I was um, saying the number of the episode, but it was on August 9th, we interviewed Fabian Padro, and Fabian is the executive director at Narcanon Ojai in Ojai, California. Steve reached out to Narcanon Ojai, uh, reached out to Fabian, and there was a graduate um, from Narcanon, Ojai, that wanted to share his story with us. His name is Giles, and this is his story. So today we have on the podcast, we have Fabian, who is the executive director of Narcanon, Ojai. Fabian, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you've been on before and really appreciate having you on again, because I know you are a busy dude. Yeah, we're pretty busy, but I'm definitely happy to be back on. Awesome. And then we also have on the podcast today, we have a graduate from Narcanon, Ojai. His name is Giles. Giles, thank you for being on the podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. Perfect. So, Giles, if you could speak up just a little bit, you're coming across a little bit soft. Okay, yeah. Is this a little better? Yes, thank you. So, Giles, typically what I, the way I start these, um, you know, this is kind of your story. So, how did you get started with drugs? Tell us your story. Oh, that's, that's a fun one. Okay. Um, so, funnily enough, um, I've always kind of been just like, an, uh, uh, you know, the quote-unquote adventurous kid, always getting into trouble as, as, as a young one. And, uh, I got into drugs. I was actually in Costa Rica. My grandparents lived there forever. So I had a group of friends down there. And, um, you know, it's, it's the classic peer pressure thing. I was, you know, in the midst of skating in Costa Rica. And, and I, was, I was with one of my buddies. And he was a little bit younger than me. And uh, he, he had smoked pot before. And he's like, yo, man, like, we're all going to smoke. Like, let's do it. And I was like, you know, I don't know. You know, my parents are here. I got to go to dinner. Uh and, and, you know, it, one thing leads to another, and, and you kind of give in. And, and I ended up smoking, smoking pot for the first time in, uh, in a skate bowl in uh, Costa Rica, Tamarindo, Costa Rica, to be specific. And funny enough, I, I was like, I've always been like kind of like a bad, bad drug addict. <laughs> 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 I always got caught. 
okay. no matter no matter what. So my first time ever smoking weed ended up going out to dinner with my parents and fell asleep at the dinner table. Instantly, my mom knew, got called out for, got in trouble, um, and you, you know. But I, I didn't really learn, and I, I I I always you know after that first time smoking pot, I was like, yo, this is cool. You know, I, I was like, wow, wow, I like the way it made me feel. I didn't worry about anything, and I was just high, right? Um, and, and to kind of continue, you know, whenever I got home, um, I, you know, I was probably I was 13, you know, turning 14, going into the summer, um, you know, got around my friends. My brother, you know, was three and a half years older than me. He was probably a junior in high school at this point. I was probably in eighth grade. And uh, just kind of got around his buddies and, and, you know, with an older crowd and, and started smoking a little bit more over the summer and <clears throat> didn't really get caught or anything and, and would get high and, and thought it was just like, you know, hey, I'm like the cool kid now. Like, I smoke weed and I'm only 14. Like, this is super, super awesome. And, um, you know, just to kind of process this, like, I come from a great family. Like, my parents are super loving and supporting and, and you know, they bless me with an amazing uh, opportunity of, of life and, and, uh, you know, right. It, it's been something that is kind of, kind of, you know, I, I like to say that I was led to this mm-hmm. in a way, or I was destined for kind of this path. And it's only because I kind of get to speak on it and, and let people know, like it doesn't always, you know, come from kind of a, a tragedy point of view, right? Yep. You can be a normal kid. You can be, um, you know, come from a great family and still kind of get wrapped up in it all. Yeah, it's really true. Um, Jason, my co-host, works here at Narcan on Suncoast, and we have said over and over again that, you know, gone are the days when addicts were typically older homeless people, you know, living under bridges. It, it really is happening in pretty much any demographic that you can name, and it's happening. So that's a very good point. You came from a very loving family who gave you lots of opportunities, and you made a bad choice. Yeah, 100%. And for me, my bad choice was something that I, you know, instantly fell in love with, right? right? It was like an instant escape for me that, God, did it lead me down an interesting path in life. And um, I, I don't know if you'd like me to continue a little bit with my story. And Absolutely. Kind of down the line. and Okay, cool, yeah. Yeah, keep talking. So I ended up, I ended up the following year um, in Bradenton or Sarasota, Florida. I was, I was a sports guy, right? So I played tennis and there's a, a big tennis academy down there called uh, IMG. And so I ended up at the sports academy and, and I kind of like moved, you know, past the smoking a little bit. And I was like, yeah, I, I got to dedicate some time to this. Uh, and then I had an injury and this injury laid me out for like six and a half months. So now I'm at a sports academy and I have nothing to do because I'm laid out with an injury where I, you know, I'm having to rehab my knee and, and kind of get to a place where I, I can even just like walk, let alone get on a court. And were you on, were you on painkillers, Giles? Again. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, definitely, you know, I, I was, I, I was put on painkillers. I had an operation on my, on my left knee, okay. right? something called a, a, a meniscus repair. So it's a, a, just a, the meniscus is in between your kneecap. And, and for me, I, I had to get it fully repaired, which is like a six and a half month recovery. Wow. That's on painkillers. Um, and from there, you know, I, I got bored. 
right? They yep. say, you know, a lot of two, the two main reasons, right, due to that people like start using drugs is well, number one, peer pressure, and then I believe number two is what boredom. Mm. Interesting. Maybe, maybe I'm misspeaking. No. Maybe I'm misspeaking, but that, at least that's what I've heard and I've seen. And I kind of had two of those things happen to me within a, a six month period to where, you know, I, I got right back into it and it ended up at the end of my freshman year, right when I was kind of coming back, um, uh, it was 420, of course, National Pop Smoking Day. And <laughs> started to smoke weed with some friends. And, and I, was, I, was living, I was living on campus too, so it was a boarding school. And one of the kids I was with had popped a whole bunch of uh, triple C, which is cough, cold, and congestion. Uh, a lot of people, you know, kids nowadays, they use it and they get high. Wow. Um, he actually overdosed in the midst of us smoking. And, um, it, it, I mean, it led to, you know, him having to go to the hospital and me getting in trouble and me getting caught. And kind of, you know, cleaning up my act a little bit. <clears throat> but it was oh. one of those, like, you know, life scare type things where, you know, you okay, think so it would make a, a little bit of a change. I'm sorry, Giles, and there's a there's a little bit of a lag, so I apologize for cutting you off. So, you guys were doing cold medicine. I, that's a, people, that's a I new one on me. What was that? I've never heard of that before. Now, if Jason were here, he may be like shaking, yeah. nodding his head, and going, "Oh yeah, I hear that all the time," but I haven't heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, people. Um, I forget the specific name of the drug, um, but it begins with a D, and it's in a lot of these cough, cold, and congestion. The medicines and actually causes hallucinations in kids. Wow. Right? And this is stuff you can buy over the counter. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. You can go to any Walgreens, any uh, Rite Aid, uh, CVS, and you can literally walk in at any age and buy these, right? Yep. And they cause hallucinations in kids and actually cause uh, an, an overdose and a seizure uh, of a kid right in front of me. Wow. But he, d- but you didn't provide the drugs uh, to him. He, it was his idea on that one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, w- I was just smoking weed at this point. I hadn't really done much else. I mean, I drank and, you know, drank alcohol from time to time. Right. Um, but hadn't really kind of ventured into that area. And, uh, you know, he... He, he had walked up to me and said, hey, man, I heard you had some pot. Like, you want to snug? I was like, sure. I was getting ready to go back to my dorm and, and eat munchies and snacks and the whole whole thing and, and literally watch this kid have a seizure in front of me. So it was, it was definitely a little bit of a wake-up call that I needed. Yep. Um, to an extent, you know, not to the full extent that, you know, most kids would see it as. Um, but I stopped smoking weed, I think, for like six months following that. Okay. Uh, wasn't super into it. Was super dedicated to tennis, um, and kind of the tale, you know, the tale of tales is. Uh, I got back into it because of you know something I wanted to cover up. Right? They say you know drugs are used, especially for myself. Like it's used for like escape, right? To run away from. Right. They're mind-altering substances. They alter your perception of that of reality. So like you don't have to exist, and you don't have to feel you know, what is actually real to you in that moment. Right. So I had a couple um, big losses in my life. Uh, my uncle passed away um, from suicide, and one of my cousins got a big brain tumor, oh. uh, and, and, and which has, you know, pretty much, you know, disabled her for the most part, even up until now, and this is years and years later. Um, so it was, it was something 
you know, at first I used to kind of co- I used tennis to cope with it. I was playing super hard. I was playing super well and experienced a little bit of loss on tennis and, you know, got surrounded with the wrong crowd. And, and this is kind of where I say, like, my, my viewpoint of drugs very much so shifted. From that, I'm like, hey, like, I'm using this to have fun to, hey, I'm using this because I don't want to feel anything. Right. I'm really sorry about your cousin and your uncle. I can understand how that might lead you down that road. Anyway, keep going. Definitely. No, I I appreciate that. It's definitely definitely one of the points I bring to, you know, I I make very aware whenever I do speak to people. Like, things do happen, right? And using drugs is not not a solution, even though it is a really quick fix. And I used it for years to kind of escape, you know, what, what, what I was really feeling. Um, you know, but to, to kind of continue, I, I I went from there to you know smoking pot and and kind of getting into uh, prescription speed was one of the things like Adderall and um, Concerta and stuff like that. Anything I could kind of get my hands on. So that's what brought me to my first suicide attempt. I think I was like 16 years old. Um, I got so hooked on prescription speed that. Um, I kind of pretty much went crazy, you know, try to fight one of my best friends, try to fight my mom because I was coming off of it. And then I stood in the bathroom with a handful of pills staring at them um, one night after, you know, apparently there was like, it was a big fight and we kind of had come to a, a, a resolve of it and I was like fine, but I wasn't really fine and, and uh, ended up taking a handful of pills and luckily I woke up the next morning. Wow. So your mom, did your mom know that you were doing drugs at that point? Um, she had kind of an idea, you know, I think every parent kind of does. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I, I'm, I've always been a very manipulative person. Mm. So like, you know, I was the person that I would look at my mom and be like, oh, you know, she'd catch me with like weed in my car. Oh, mom, that wasn't me. Like that was my friend. Well, you know, you're not supposed to be around, like, you know, pot and marijuana. I don't want you around that job. Oh, yeah, next time, for sure, I know now. Like, very, very kind of distorted perception. Like, oh, I now know that I can't have weed in my car. Right. But I'm not supposed to have any weed around me. I'd make it so specific that it would kind of, you know, distort the argument and, and make myself right in any way, shape, or form. Right. So you're 16 and you try and commit suicide. Yeah, that was, that, was my, that was my first attempt. Unbelievable. It, yeah, it, 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 what, when you're using drugs, it's kind of one of those things where you, you don't know what's real anymore. And like your idea of life is so vague because you're living in such a la la land. At the age of 16, I think I was high for the majority of the day. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd smoke pot and go play tennis. I'd right. get, you know, go to school right after that. Before I went to school, I'd smoke some pot. And throughout the day, I'd be popping Adderall. And I'd be popping Concerta and, you know, whatever I could to stay awake. Wow. And then at night, I would have to smoke weed to go to bed. So I feel, you know, from really from the time I was like 16 on, there wasn't, you know, probably more of a span, you know, more than a span of like a month where I was, wasn't just like completely intoxicated on pretty much anything I could find. Wow. Um, which obviously progresses, you know, farther right. and farther and deeper into the realm of, of kind of the drug world. Right. Okay, but Giles, you took a whole handful of pills. How come, I mean, how come you didn't die? I mean, did they get you, you know, to the I, hospital I've and you asked, got pumped, I've, your I've, stomach I've pumped? Or? 
I didn't. Oh, wow. I, I didn't. And I, you know, I'm, I, I ask that question myself all the time, how I didn't overdose. Wow. Um, how I didn't die. Um, and, you know, I'm just thankful that it, that I, I, it wasn't my time to go. Right. I guess you'd say. Right. That it, it wasn't. It, it wasn't right at the moment for me, and 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 I, you know, I stayed put on this planet, and have been able to now, you know, get clean and and <clears throat> kind of experience a journey that has been a lot harder <laughs> than most people getting, you know, most people getting into the age of twenty three, um, but to me a very very rewardful one, right? Uh, one that now I'm able to kind of speak on and and have a platform. Right. Now, you said that was the first time you attempted suicide. So I'm assuming that means that you did it more than once or tried it more than once? Yeah. I've attempted suicide three times. Okay. And uh, what, and what so happened the second time? It kind of progresses. So it's the second time. Ooh, the second time I was already in college. So this is after I'd already gone to rehab uh, once before. Okay, and what and what progressing pretty far? And, what rehab was uh, that? Was that a was that a twelve step program or what was it? To a degree, so it was a wilderness program that was called SUWS, S-U-W-S. Oh yeah, Jason went to a wilderness uh, program. He did one of those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was amazing for what I needed for sure. It's my whole junior year, um, so my sophomore year was my first suicide attempt. I went into my junior year. This was just like full party job. This uh-huh. was like okay, cool. What's cocaine? Let me do some cocaine. That's cool. What's ecstasy? Wow, that's this is crazy. Um, you know, I was partying with, you know, obviously everyone at the school, the majority of them are international. So I was partying with kids whose dads were like leaders of the like northern Mexican drug cartel. Um, you know, people whose parents were high ranking in the Russian mob in Ukraine and in Russia. I was going to clubs at the age of 17, getting full tables. There's Coke all over the tables, right? Mounds of it when you'd walk in. We'd rent out full floors of clubs. Wow. Um, you know, no IDs, no nothing. You walk in, you know, you have the whole floor, you have the whole table rented out, and, you know, you're just partying. Wow. I mean, you see that in movies, but I, I, I've never, you know, like spoken to someone who's actually experienced some of that. Like, oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was real life. I mean, I remember weekends being, you know, 16, 17 years old, going down to Miami, um, being in clubs, going to music festivals. Um, you know, this is like kind of my first experience of like starting to sell drugs. I started selling ecstasy at music festivals, um, having, you know, mounds of coke in front of us, girls everywhere, you know, the whole shebang, just being surrounded by people who have power, but who are using it for just super, you know, being very poor influences on, on such young people. I've been at a party with people like 20, 30, 35. Wow. And, I, and I'm a kid. I mean, I, nowadays I look at 16-year-olds even at like the age of 23, and I'm like, wow, they're, they're babies. Right. You know, they're, 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 they're children, and at their age I was doing stuff that most people don't do throughout their entire life. Right. Um pretty insane. So I, uh, I ended up getting picked up one night. Uh, I had like run away from home. I decided I was going to get emancipated my junior high school and, uh, just ended up, <laughs> uh, ended up getting the cops calling me by my parents, brought me to the house. Then throughout over, it was like 2am in the morning. I got transported 
to Idaho. Right, to six foot six in long boots, put me in handcuffs, put me on a plane, and sent me out to my first rehab, which I spent two and a half months um, hiking like 180 plus miles across the deserts and mountains of Idaho. It's pretty insane. Okay. Pretty insane. I, uh, I, I definitely got a lot out of it um, on like a personal level, but in terms of like drug use, nothing, nothing was handled. I was going to say, like, did you get clean? Out, did it know, work? Party. Yeah. This is a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. If you'd like further information on the podcast, you can visit us on our Facebook page by the same name, the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, or you can email us. We have an email address, T-A-P-P-O-N-R. Those are the first letters of the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. T-A-P-P-O-N-R 2017 at gmail.com. If you'd like further information on Narcan on Suncoast, the number is 877-339-3324. That's 877-339-3324. Yeah, I mean, I got clean. I was clean for about three months. Um, used ecstasy one time, regretted it. And then went into my senior year of high school where I didn't smoke pot the entire year, but I mean, I was drinking on the weekends and, um, you know, ha- had a very successful senior year, I'd say that, um, to the point where at the end of the year, um, started smoking a little bit of weed again, accepted an academic scholarship to Louisiana State University mm-hmm. um, and ended up, ended up in a fraternity there. Um, and then that was like my first big experience of selling drugs. I started, you know, selling about a pound of weed uh, a week. Wow. Uh, and, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, I lasted a whole six weeks there. Okay. Until I sunk out. <laughs> and uh, ended up moving back to Chicago with my parents, um, trying to just kind of get my life sorted and situated. Um, oh. Which... Around five months later, I started smoking pot again. So, you know, before I kind of progressed into like my later drug usage, one of the one of the big things that I always kind of saw, and and now that I look at, um, just to kind of speak on pot being like a gateway drug for me at least. Every time I got clean, the first thing I ever did then after that, when I would, you know, obviously use or you know get high, I smoke weed. Right. So it was not only a gateway drug, it was a re-entry drug for you. A hundred percent, right? Yeah, yeah. By me smoking weed, what it does is it surrounds you with people who party, right? If right. you and your friend are smoking pot together, and, uh, you know, three or four months, you're doing something your parents don't like, right? So, um, you know, one of, one of the things I always say is, like, I, I hate being wrong. I think everyone does. No one likes to be wrong. Right. <laughs> right. So you're making yourself right by doing this, right? You and your friend that you're smoking weed with, you guys are both right because you can't be wrong. Right. Well, all of a sudden, your homie then brings you a little bit of coke. And since he hasn't been wrong smoking weed and you haven't been wrong smoking weed, then coke isn't probably wrong. And you're not going to admit that you're wrong, um, you know, in the first place for doing drugs at all. So you're going to do a little bit of coke. Right. And it just kind of progresses down that road to a point where, you know, a lot of people don't make it out. Yeah. And, you know, the people that do have uh, quite interesting stories to follow. 
Exactly. You You were, you were, Uh, I had asked you about your second suicide attempt. Is that where you're headed? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, um, I, I ended up in Chicago following, you know, the following year, I ended up in Chicago at DePaul University. Um, and this is kind of where my major drug dealing started. I started moving about two pounds of pot a week, kind of got into the underground electronic music scene. Um, where I got involved with one of my drugs of choice, which was ketamine. Oh, uh, yes. Um, do you know what ketamine is? I do. Yeah, ketamine. Cat tranquilizer, right? Uh, dissociative, because you dissociate from everything. So I got involved in that, um, and following that, you know, you just kind of slip down to slippery slope, right? Because ketamine is expensive, and as a broke college kid, how are you going to buy it? Right. So I started selling coke. Um, and at this point, this is where I got wrapped up with the Mexican drug cartel. Oh my God. Eee! Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I told you he had a quite a story. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. So you're in with the Mexican drug cartel. Okay. So I, I wasn't personally in it, um, but I worked with people who were, so um, towards towards the end of it, I was moving about uh, a pound to a pound and a half of coke a week, um, and around a pound and a half to two pounds of ketamine a week. I was involved in international ketamine drug smuggling operation, where we had uh, drug runners driving from uh, Chicago to New York and back to pick up ketamine from out of the triads. We'd buy about ten to fifteen kilos, and then that would be dispersed around Chicago and Milwaukee. Wow. Right. And this, this all started from me, you know, buying a, a half pound or something in August and by April. So what, six months? Yep. Uh, I was, you know, I went, went from, you know, making what, like a thousand bucks a week to that of, you know, I was moving, moving so much weight that it was between 10 and 20. Wow. Thousand, thousand a week. So it was, it, it, it progressed super fast and, you know, I, I've had guns, you know, pointed at me. I've been robbed. I've had knives at my throat. I've had the cold steel of a gun barrel pressed against my forehead. All the while, still holding on. Yep. Still using drugs. Still partying and just, you know, not being fully blinded by that of, you know, kind of the drug world and, and what those drugs do to you and the stuff like that would happen and I'd brush it off by going and smoking a joint and saying, hey, it's cool, I didn't get hurt, I'm, I'm fine, I still got my drugs, right? Right. So this kind of led me into my second suicide attempt where I'd just broken up with my girlfriend or she had broken up with me, which was in April. Um, and I, I call this kind of an attempt, it wasn't necessarily, I, I had a knife in my wrist for about 35 minutes. Um, to the point where I drew blood. And then one of my roommates actually barged in and, and saw me and uh, stopped me and, you know, broke down crying. And, and it, it was a pretty pretty dark time to me, right? Because the only time I was ever happy was when I was high. And every time the drugs would wear off, I was in the same exact old place that I'd been in for, you know, ever, ever since I'd kind of suppressed everything from the time I was 16 when kind of, you know, my uncle died and my cousin got sick and I dropped out of college and all of these things were, you know, had culminated and led up to just this kind of this point of a lot of people see it as no return. Right. So a lot of the time, 
you know, they see the best option as suicide. Right. You know, a second supportive, you know, friend in my life at least at the time that would <clears throat> kind of recognize that and stop me um, from taking my own life. Right. So was that a was that a wake up call yeah, for you? You know, I wish I wish it was. Okay. Um, it actually caused me to kind of spiral down and out of control to I think probably my lowest point in my life. Um, the drug dealing continued. The the amount grew, um, and kind of kind of the lowest point for me was my last suicide attempt, where I tried to purposely ID. Wow. Um, and this is kind of a crazy story. I, I woke up in the morning and, and I was just, I was done. I'd just been robbed of like $20,000 um, by a close friend of mine. So I thought, um, was supposed to be moving out. I had no real direction. I hadn't spoken to my family in like six months, even though it lived maybe 15 minutes away from why I had my apartment. Um, and I, I sat in the bathtub and I started doing ketamine. Wow. And uh, a normal dosage of ketamine, if say you're like snorting it or you're taking it nasally, right, would be, you know, a, a tenth of a gram, right? A 0.1 or a, a 0.2 gram, you know, bump, as they call it, right? Right. Or line. I was sitting in the bath doing a gram and a half lines. Wow. Just trying to, trying to, you know, end it, you know, trying to just make some sense of it all. I, I proceeded to sit there for four hours. Uh, after the bath, moving to my bed, I'm doing even more and more each time. I think the, the largest line or the most amount I did in one sitting uh, to try and OD was like two and a half grams of ketamine. Wow. Which is, yeah, it's insane. Um, insane, and, and I somehow woke up. I somehow, you know, kind of came to and uh, had this kind of like aha moment went down to the, the, the lakefront. I was in Chicago at this point, so went down to the lakefront. And at that exact moment, my mom texted me. Wow. And, you know, kind of throughout this all, my mom would text, would call, would post pictures on Facebook of, like, the old me. And, um, you know, I was, I was a shell of myself. I went from 215 pounds in a calendar year. I was down to 160. Wow. Um, we mothers have a sixth sense, by the way. Me. Oh, boy, do they. I, I keep that text. Actually, I, I have that text saved, and I look at it every now and then just to kind of remember, you know, how dark of a place it was, you know. And I broke down in tears. She was just relating to me. She was trying to trying to find anything that we could, like, agree on that was real and um, did it so perfectly. I gave her a call that second, and I went home for the first time in six months that day. Wow. Um Two weeks later, my mom looks at me and said, hey, uh, it was kind of like that perfect crossroads point in my life because I was moving out of my apartment. I didn't know what I wanted to do. She's like, hey, come back to the house. So I came back to the house for a couple of days and she looked at me and said, hey, I'm sending you to California. And I said, oh, for what? She's like, I just want you to go see your uncle. She's like, just go breathe. It's like what she would keep saying. She's like, just go breathe. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right, I'll go breathe. So I get out there day two, I'm out there. Oh God! And uh, my uncle looks at me and says, "Hey, you want to you want to take a, like a drive up to like this beautiful mountain town? It's called Ojai. It's like gorgeous." <laughs> like, sure, dude. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. We drive up there, and as we're eating eating lunch, I kind of just like perceived it. 
said, he looked at me and was like, hey, you know, I want to tell you something. I was like, we're going to go check out a rehab, aren't we? <laughs> like, yeah, how do you know? I was like, <laughs> it's kind of, it was kind of like, you know, a six sentence. But like, I just knew. And I looked at him and he said, you know, what do you think? I said, let's go. I was like, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go see what it is, what it's all about. And when was that? When was that? I was first. Uh, when was that? Yeah. That was in uh, August of 2016. Okay. August 16th, to be specific. Wow. And uh, I drove up there. I fell in love with everyone. <laughs> uh, and the place and everything that had to do with Narconon, the program, the people. I, I, I walked in and I felt like I was family. It was unbelievable. Wow. Uh, to the point where, you know, obviously I had to... You know, call my parents and see how we could make this work. And I called, and within a 30-second phone call, and I was like, hey, do you want to do it? I was like, I don't want to do any other part of this or that. And she looks and she's like, okay, then what are you waiting for? Now, Fabian, were you, were, you there when, were you there when Giles came? I, I unfortunately was not there yet. I had came shortly after uh, Giles arriving, but... So, you know, since him graduating, we've obviously worked a lot together. He has obviously an amazing, uh, you know, story. And, you know, Giles has gone and talked to hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, inner youth kids, at-risk kids uh, for Narconon on behalf of another program that we work with, The Truth About Drugs, uh, which educates, you know, young young at-youth, uh, at-risk kids on, you know, the, the, the harmful effects of drugs and and, uh, you know, we've done many different interviews, t- you know, telling Giles' story of, of, you know, how, you know, an, a gateway drug from going from that uh, can escalate into, obviously, the story that you just heard. Right. And, uh, obviously, <clears throat> you know, the scale and darkness of addiction in the United States is, is reaching epidemic proportions, and it, it, addiction doesn't discriminate. It involves you know, opiates, alcohol, marijuana, and it affects both, you know, men and women. It touches people of all ages, all backgrounds, all education levels and races. And it doesn't differentiate between, you know, socioeconomic statuses or income levels. Like you guys were, you know, obviously over the podcast stating that, you know, those days of being homeless and under a bridge, it just doesn't, that's not where addiction is at. You know, it's obviously escalated to, to the story that we just heard. And um, obviously the numbers are getting worse. Uh, you know, we just came out with an article uh, that 115 people die every day from uh, preventable drug overdoses. Right. From fentanyl, heroin, or other opiate drugs. It's been a 30% increase in just the past year uh, of, of as far as addiction goes. They've already reached, you know, in 2018, you know, drug overdoses claimed more lives than that were lost in the Vietnam War right. just last year alone. Yeah. And, you know, uh, yeah. it's claiming more lives than is the leading cause of death for Americans under 50. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's amazing. And, you know, obviously we have this opportunity to, to tell Giles' story, somebody that came through the Narconon program and, you know, his story hopefully will help and, and touch a lot of people and show, you know, that you need to get help quickly before things obviously escalate, you know, can escalate very quickly. And 
lead into some really, really, you know, bad things. And obviously he's been able to turn around and tell the story and help a lot of people so that they don't get into the same trap that he's gotten in, you know, was in. Right. Hey, I want to backtrack just for a second. Giles, can you tell me at what point in the Narconon program you kind of knew that you were going to be able to get clean and sober and stay clean and sober. Was there a moment like that for you? Oh, yeah. It was actually super funny. So I had been in the program for maybe maybe a month or so, right? And I, I had, like, I, I knew I was going to be sober, but I had this kind of, like, aha moment. Um, and one of the parts of the program is called, uh, uh, what is it, it's objective. Is that right? Is that what you call it up there? Yes, that's correct. Yep. So there's a part of the program called objective processes, which is amazing. And I I had kind of this like realization where I called my mom, right? I had been there for a month and I had talked to my mom a whole bunch throughout and uh, had been doing it a while, but I I called her on the phone and I said, mom, mom, if you remember, you remember guess what happened? She said, what child? I was like, I can't, I can't smoke weed anymore. (laughs) And my mom laughed so hard. And she looked at me, she's like, duh. That is funny. Right? So I'm 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 this I'm this you know, this guy in in, in rehab for drug use. But it took me having that realization on my own, right? You know, on one of these, you know, objective processes that we were doing on one of these objectives that we are doing, for me to have it really click. Right. right? It, it really does show that, you know, addiction, you know, I, I, have, I have friends who are still addicts, and, and even with, you know, my story and them knowing it, they still choose, you know, to use drugs. Right. right? Or acquaintances now more so, just people that check in with to make sure they're doing okay, right? Yep. So it, it really does show that addiction is such a personal thing. Yep. And until a person wants to be helped, it doesn't mean you shouldn't always, you know, reach out and try and help them. But until they want to get clean, they're not going. That's right. There has to be agreement there. There's got to be an agreement. They have to have their own agreement with themselves. Like, you know what? I need, I need, I need to get clean. Yep. You You know, I'm saying this a lot for, you know, families and people who, you know, have addicts in their family. You know, don't stop helping them, for sure. No, you know, help them as much as you can, as long as it does benefit them. But when you start, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When you start um, enabling them and allowing them to still use, you know, that's the point where you kind of got to back off and let that addict figure out, you know, what is sobriety to them and, and what is their life on drugs. That's right. That's exactly right. And so you didn't go back to Chicago. You stayed in California. Are you still in? You're still in California, right? Yeah. So I still live. I, I live in Los Angeles now. I'm, I'm in California, so I, I needed a full change of environment afterwards too. Understood. Uh, I needed. I, I needed something different because I'd gone to rehab once before, and I went back into the same environment. And guess what? I got back into drugs. Right. And I think I that's a place where no one. Yep. I think that's true for a, a lot of times. I know I know of a young man who, 
you know, completed the program, but then tried to go right back into the same environment. And there's just too many triggers, if you will, that can just trigger some of those bad choices again. And then boom, they're right, they're right back to using. My, my brother, my brother did the same thing. Right after I finished um, my Northland program, I got him up and into the program, and, and he wasn't super self-determined for it. It was more so he got caught right. and went to save face. Um, but he went back into the same environment that he was living in, and, and surely enough, within a couple of weeks, he was back using, you know, to the point where um, I had to, what was it, like a year later, um, I pretty much got a, a phone call from him, you know, crying, saying he's going to end it all, and I had to get him on a plane and get him out to California. And, um, you know, he got himself into rehab. I got him into detox, and um, he's he afterwards one of the, one of the main uh, agreements that we made is afterwards you're living with me. You're going to come to LA and you're going to stay with me in my house, and we're going to get you completely clean and we're going to keep you sober. Right. Um, and my brother actually just. Uh, finished his first year of sobriety. Awesome. Oh, that's awesome. I'm really glad yeah. to hear that. Well well done, you. Yeah, thank you. And well well done him. He's, Ex- he's, he's a rock star now. He's, he's just killing it. So it's amazing to see. That's awesome. Giles, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I, you know, we have so many different stories and they're are similarities, but there are differences with every story. And what I think makes them makes this podcast work as well as it does is because somebody listening either has a similar story to yours, or they know somebody that has a similar story to yours. And the important message that we always say is, you know, get help. Don't, don't wait you know, do something and, and get help. But one of the things I like to ask the people that we interview is if you could say anything to the people who listen to the podcast, what would be your message, Giles? What would you say? I, I say this exact thing to every single time I go to a, like an at-risk youth group or high school. Or, um, I was even on radio for, I think, 4 million people recently, which is amazing. Wow. One of one of the, the main thing I say is is drug use currently is, is such like this dark and secretive thing, right? Um, and I I I like to kind of bring it to light and share with the fact like, hey, it can happen to anyone. It can be happening all around you. You know, don't be afraid to speak up if you have a friend who's kind of getting too deep. Don't be afraid to speak up if you have a family member or a son. Right. Yep. These, these people, they get, you know, addicts, they get stuck in such a dark hole that they feel there's no escape. Sometimes all it takes is like a helping hand. Right. Yep. This aha moment, reaching down, saying, hey, you know, what? you're not alone. <clears throat> so I think that's that's one of the big things is, you know, that, that I like to say to any addict, hey, you're not alone. Yep. It, it, it happens to everyone. You can look left, you can look right. A man could be wearing a suit or a man could be wearing shorts and a t-shirt and you don't know their story. Right. Get out, speak out, and 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 make yourself known if you need some help. Exactly. That That's awesome. Thank you so much, Giles. Fabian, give us the contact information for Narconon Ojai since I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, I, I do. So obviously our number is 805-798-8040. 
you can always visit us on the web at www.narcononohi.org. And uh, obviously, if you have a friend or a family member that you know addiction is affecting their life, they can just call in and speak with a service consultant that can do you know an eligibility at- application on them and you know direct the person um, to any center or the correct center. Obviously, uh, Narconon Ojai is the premier center in the U.S. Uh, for Narconon. We're, we're on 45 acre property in, in Ojai, California. It's a 27,000 square foot facility. We only accept uh, five students onto the program at a time. So it's, you know, a person gets their own private suite. It's a very personalized, uh, you know, program. And obviously, you know, treatment is important and you need effective help and, and Ojai, Narconon Ojai, that's where, where we come in. Perfect. And so once again, everybody, that number is 805-798-8040. And that is org. I hope that you enjoyed listening to Giles's story. Um, it's quite the um, rocket ride downward, if you will, from, you know, smoking marijuana to selling cocaine for the Mexican drug cartel, not a direction that um, obviously we'd like people to go in. I think that one of the messages, kind of similar to what Giles said at the end of his interview, here's the message. If you're listening to this podcast and you are addicted or you have a friend or a loved one that's addicted and you may be in a state where you don't think anything can be done about it, and I want to make one point very, very clear. Something can be done about it. And you just have to reach out for help. And even if you go to either org or org, you can reach out completely anonymously. You can tell your story, but there's people there who are there to help you. And what all we want for you is to live a sober, happy life. And we know that it's possible. So Something can be done about it. We want to give you hope and we will talk to you again next week. Hopefully Jason will be with me, but rain or shine, we'll be here and we'll be talking about addiction. Have a good week and I will see you next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.